Good evening. Numbers 26, please. It's not a typo. We're going through 36, which is 11 chapters into the end of the book. So that means next week we will begin Deuteronomy. Um, We're going to do it in four messages. It's going to go quick. Because Moses is giving four sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. It's his last four messages to the people. Uh, So we're going to cover what he covers in one night. You know, so four weeks, four messages. So you can, uh, it's in the bulletin if you want to read ahead. But right now we're going to finish Numbers, Numbers 26 through 36. One of the greatest hindrances to our moving into the life that God has promised us, the fullness, the richness, the promised land, one of the great hindrances toward our living in that is unworthiness. The feeling of unworthiness. That I have flaws, I have failures, and I have fallen short. I have flunked the test three times. I have flunked my way out of God's best, out of the promised land. And so because I am unworthy of inheriting, I therefore will settle for as close as I can get. Many Christians have fallen somewhere, and because of that, don't feel worthy of pressing on forward into what God has promised and is calling them into. How can I, who have flunked this many times, dare think myself worthy of going in this direction? That, my friends, is called shame. And that works against us. The devil uses shame to push us away. You see this early in the Bible, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve exile themselves from the Garden of Eden before God said a word to them. Remember that. They eat the fruit. Their eyes are open. They're aware of wrong. So what do they do? The first thing they do, they hear the sound of God and hide. And as if running away and hiding wasn't enough, they say, let's cover ourselves up. This is classic shame behavior. They feel that they cannot come to God, and they are therefore excluding themselves from the riches of Eden on their own accord. And then because of all this, you know, they they blame and they blame and they blame. That's shame. God does not want you to feel shame. Shame teaches you that you're unworthy, therefore you deserve to be less than where God wants you to be. That is not from God. Shame is not from God. Rather, guilt is sometimes the more appropriate feeling. Yeah, I have failed. I have flaws. I have fallen short. Should I feel guilty for that? I do. But Jesus forgives that. See, guilt tells me to, says to me, hey, hey, it's okay. Jesus covers this. Go forward. We all make mistakes. Shame says I can never be reconciled. I can never be forgiven. I am not personally worthy of more than this rotten lot of luck. Or to put it this way, guilt is the word we use to say, I did something bad. I messed up. I made a mistake. Shame is the word we use to say that I am bad. 
I am inherently unworthy of anything God wants to do with me. I don't deserve it, which I know to a degree we're all saying that's true. We don't deserve it, and that's what grace does. But it's when you continue to say, I deserve less than God's best, then you're persistently rejecting the grace that says, yeah, you are not enough, but in Christ, you're more than enough. Shame holds people back, and it is one of the most deeply rooted human emotions plaguing Christianity today. And unfortunately, a lot of leadership in Christianity uses shame to drive people toward righteousness. If you do that, we will shame you. We will make you feel like you are not worthy of our club because you support that company or vote for that politician. Shame is is not of God, and it holds people back. Well, I want you to go forward just for a minute to Numbers chapter 32. Thirty-two verse one. Here we meet the two and a half tribes. Two and a half? Yeah, two and a half. There's twelve, two and a half. Do this. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad, that's a tribe, and the people of Reuben, that's a tribe came to Moses and to Eliezer the priest. Remember, Aaron has died, so Eliezer is the new priest. And to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, these people, verse 4, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not Take us across the Jordan. Okay. Israel has for 40 years been on this journey out of Egypt, a place of slavery, and being brought to the promised land, a fruitful land, which is representative and symbolic of the best God has for us. And they've been going there. And now that they're at the threshold, they've conquered some land just outside the promised land. So there's a river, right? The Jordan River. They're on the east side of it. They're going to cross over to the west side, which is the promised land. This river is the entry point to the promised land. They're on the east side. And they're like, hey, before we go in, this land is really good. Look, it's flat. There's a lot of grass. This is perfect for cowboys and cowgirls. We want to be here. We don't want to go into the actual promised land. Well, Moses obviously took this very well. And he, he, he's upset with them, and he, he basically tells them, uh, fine, I can't change your mind, but please, please, please go in with your brothers and fight the wars with them, and then you can return. And so they make that deal, and he promises, hey, uh, don't back out because your sin will find you out if you do. What's going on with these two and a half tribes? By the way, the half tribe is Manasseh, so half of a tribe is going to join, and the other half's like, yeah, we want to go to the promised land. So these two and a half settle just outside what God wants for them. What's going on? Is it possible that the lingering shame of 40 years of failure, 
40 years of exposed flaws, 40 years of falling short of what God had called his people to be has taught them that, hey, this is better than the wilderness. We don't even deserve this. Let's take what we can get. We're not even sure we can go into the land. Moses warns them, do not discourage your brothers. As happened 40 years ago when the 10 spies came back and said, we can't do it. What I feel happens to us is we get beat down. We get knocked down. We flunk our way out of what we think we're doing well, out of what God's will is. And many of us are tempted to stay just short of pressing on into what God wants us to do. I believe that tonight's text, this whole chunk, the rest of Numbers, is being given to a new generation of Israel to say, the mistakes, the failures, the flaws, the falling short back then is back then. Let's not limit ourselves. Let's not stay on our rump or down on our face. Let's get back up. Just as your fathers did over and over and over again, let's get back up and let's go where we're supposed to go. Nine and a half get the message, two and a half do not. So now we can go back to our beginning, Numbers 26. And this is where it picks up. We know we're in new territory because you're going to see something familiar. Numbers 26, verse 1. After the plague, remember a bunch of people died for um, idolatry. The Lord said to Moses and Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward. Take a census. This is exactly how we opened the book of Numbers. We opened it with God saying, take a census of the people of Israel. And we read all of those verses about how many people came from this tribe and that tribe. And it tallied them up to 603,000 and change. Well, why are we doing another census now? Did an auditor say they got the numbers wrong? No. No. 40 years have gone by and that rebellious generation has died. A new one is ready to take the promised land. And God says, let's start over. Fresh start here. Take a census. It adds up to 601,000 and change. Not bad. Hardly lost anyone, at least number, the whole number size-wise. They lost a lot of people, but that's another thing. Um, what's he doing? The beginning of the book, God said, you guys count. Every single one of my people count. And I want a name and a number for each one. They matter. Well, they go through lots of complaining, um, lots of rebellions. And now to a new generation that has seen the miserable mistakes of their forefathers, he says to this new group, hey, you still count. You still count. The mistakes that have been happening, even the chapter before, that mistake... Don't worry about it. 
I still consider you important. I still want you to be numbered and named and to inherit what I have for you. Still. Yes, you've fallen down, but I want you guys to pick yourselves back up yet again. And let's go forward into the promised land. The Proverbs say this, Proverbs 24, verse 16. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Has Israel fallen seven times? You may be cutting that number in half. It may be 1,400 times that they have fallen through our narrative of the wilderness. Yet they are going to rise again. God's encouraging them, don't stay down. I want you to rise yet again. Get back up again, Israel. Why? Why should you get back up? Why shouldn't you wallow in the shame of your failures and your flaws and your falling short? Why shouldn't you stay there? Because you still count. Even after all of that flunking, you still count. So get back up again and let's go forward. Great word, great news. All right, how do we do it? Well, I think that the rest of this passage at the end of the book is going to give Israel six ways that they can get back up again. Six ways to remember that they still count. Now, um, a footnote, a boring footnote. Actually, there was like nine that I could have like said, oh, that works too. And that, I was like, that's a lot. So there's a rule in communication, you're not supposed to go over five points in any kind of a list. Well, I, I did six, so I'm pushing it. So um, we got it down to as, 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 as simple as we can get it. So let's go through this. The six ways that we can get back up again. Number one, let's go to chapter 27. Number one, find a mentor. Find a mentor. Find someone who's been there who can walk with you through it. Find a mentor. Chapter 27, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. That's Bible for you're going to die. 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribach, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, 16. Okay, uh, this is great. This is fantastic. Moses, you're gonna, I'm asking you to go up this mountain, you're going to die. Moses' first words are, do I have to? They're not that. Nor are they, this isn't fair. No, 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 maybe my appeal got lost. I appealed to your decision. We need a retrial. Not, not that either. His first words are these in 16. You're going to die, Moses. Okay, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. His dying thought, if you will, is the people. And so the Lord said to Moses in 18, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, And lay your hand on him, 
Make him stand before Eliezer the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with the same, with some of the authority, some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. What, 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 is, what, is, what are Moses and God doing here? They're coming up with this plan. Hey, these people are down. They've gone through a hard 40 years where shame can easily wash them behind the trees of Eden, where they say, we're not worthy of the promised land. And God is saying, no, no. They are not going to be worse because Moses is now passing on. They're going to be better. And I'm going to give them a person who will mentor them through this shame, who will tell them that they are more than conquerors in Christ and that they can go into this promised land and inherit more than they thought possible. God gives them a leader to help them back up again. And you and I will have times when we fall down, we flunk, we fail, we see our flaws, we fall short, and we are going to need that person who knows what it's like to be where you are and to say, it gets better. You can do this. You're listening to the devil who's condemning you. You're not listening to the spirit of God who's saying, you are my son, my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. That's what mentors are there for. They're there to get us through where we haven't yet been because they've already been through it. Joshua's been through the whole 40 years. He's one of the only, one of only two people to be uh, allowed into the promised land. The rest of them have died because of the rebellions. But Joshua has gone through all that. He's seen everything that this people has gone through. If there wasn't a better mentor than Joshua, well, there isn't a better mentor than Joshua. And so find for yourself that person who can help you get back up again when you are down and shame is hedging you behind the will of God. Number two, chapter 28. So find a mentor. Number two, worship deeper. Worship deeper. When you're down and it's time to get back up again, sometimes we have to revisit worship in a deeper way, from a new perspective, from something that we haven't done before because we haven't seen it from that posture before. It's time to worship deeper because that will bring us up. Notice chapter 28 and 29. These cover the same seven feasts that we saw in Leviticus chapter 23 and have already gone through. The same seven festivals that happened every year for Israel. But this time, it covers it in a different perspective. In Leviticus, we were told what the festival was for. In Numbers, here, he's going to tell them what they were to offer the sacrifices for each of those festivals. Specifically, those, uh, all the sacrifices. Even down, not just to each festival, but down to what they did each Sabbath, and then down to what they did each day, and then down to what they did each morning and evening. You see how much deeper the worship is going here. It isn't, hey, here's seven fun things to do through the year. It's, here's what you do every morning and evening. And this is specifically what I'm looking for. He's calling them into deeper worship. 28 verse 1, just to give you a sample. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. See the details. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. 
The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen of each, for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You got it? I don't think you're going to miss anything there. The Sabbath does the same. Each Sabbath, you are to have the specific offering. In verse 11, the monthly offerings. Once a month, they're to have specific offerings. Then in verse 16, we go to the beginning of the seven festivals, and this is specifically what you are to offer for each. Um, So just as an example, uh, so verse 16, the Passover offerings. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover And on the fifteenth day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. On the first day you shall there shall be a holy convocation. That's an assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram and seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish, but Uh, without blemish. Also, their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, a tenth you shall offer for each of the seven lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Do you see what I'm saying? We've been over this ground before, but never in this kind of detail. This is going deep into what God wants. And when we fall down, one of the ways we can get back up yet again is to say, I'm going to revisit my worship habits. Because sometimes we get into autopilot and we need to look at it in a different way, in a more specific way and say, I'm going to go a little bit deeper and maybe this will give me the energy I need to get up and say, God is too good for me to sit on my rump and be sorry for myself. Find a mentor, worship deeper. Number three. Chapter 30. 30 verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Very simple. The rest of the chapter is what happens when a woman makes a vow because the woman is owned by the man, especially if it's a daughter who is not yet of age or if she's married to a husband or is a servant. There's all these things about, it's a little more complicated if the woman makes a vow. The point is very clear though. God wants the vow to be kept. In other words, don't rashly say, this is what I want or this is what I think should happen. God is saying, make sure you're sure. Be intentional about what you are saying. In other words, here we are. The third way we can get back up again is to be intentional. Be intentional, not incidental. Incidental is, yeah, well, you know, things are kind of down right now, but you know what? We'll kind of see where things go. Be intentional means I don't want to be where I am, and I want to be where God wants me to be. So here's what I'm going to do. 
Tomorrow, I'm going to start worshiping deeper. On Tuesday, I'm going to find a mentor. That's intentionality. That's trying to take control of your situation and saying, I'm not going to be a passive victim to my failure, my shortcomings. I'm going to stand up in the grace of God and say, God, help me. And this is what I'm planning to do. Be intentional. So you're not going to make a vow to God and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this sounds like it's a promising vow to make. And then God says, you better live up to it. So, so if you're going to make a vow to yourself, live up to it. If you're saying, I want to go forward, then you need to have a plan and you need to be intentional about it. Sometimes our biggest problem is that we go through life saying, yeah, 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 yeah we'll just see what happens. Or things are just are. Um, sometimes we need to just say, yeah, I failed, but I need to make that right. Or I see where I'm falling short. I'm going to talk to this person about this because I know that they know how to handle this. Or I'm going to start actually applying the Bible verses I'm reading. <laughs> or I'm going to start praying. But there just needs to be intentionality. This is my plan, and I will stick to it. I am vowing this. Number four, chapter 31. Fourth way to get back up again. Fourth way to remember that you still count. Kill Balaam. Now, don't go Google, who's Balaam and how shall I kill him? <laughs> Balaam is the weird, psychotic, prophet, sorcerer guy we saw last week who tried to curse Israel, but God transformed that into a blessing. And so then he said, well, I guess didn't work out. But then it, we learned that he advised the king of Moab and Midian to... Um, curse the people of Israel by getting their young men seduced by the young woman, the pagan young women, so that they would merge their gods and have this sort of idolatrous affair. And that brought the plague upon Israel. And yeah, God wants this dealt with. So in chapter 31, verse 1, we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses' death is going to be prolonged quite a bit. Um, just so you know, he doesn't die till the end of Deuteronomy. So, you know, we said, Moses, you're about to die, but chapters are going to drag on. Because Moses is going to finish his job. So Moses needs to avenge the people of Midian. So Moses spoke, verse 3, to the people saying, Arm men from among your, you for the war, that you may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So they went, they were successful in verse 13. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Why is he, why is he angry? They won the war. What could Moses possibly be upset about? Well, in 15, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. Moses is irate because although Balaam dies in battle, 
his influence is lingering. And Moses is saying, yo, you are never going to get up again and inherit the promised land if you let this influence linger. Have you not learned a thing? Brothers and sisters, we know we have flaws. We know we fail. We know we fall short. And yet we pray with Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, just not yet. And many of us know that which causes us to flunk our progress. It's Balaam, the metaphor for your thing. And we let it linger. Oh, I don't like it. Everyone says that about their sin, their pest, their thorn, their Balaam. No one likes it. But no one hates it enough to kill it. Colossians 3 Paul tells the city of Colossae, the church there, he says, put to death your earthly members. And he names them, some sins. The parts of you that are attaching itself to the ways of the world instead of God's plan. He just says, he doesn't say just walk away from it. He says, put that part of you to death. Jesus says, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to fall, gouge it out or cut it off. Sometimes we're far too tolerant. There's also this scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, in which a man has his Balaam in the form of this red lizard which whispers into his ear, and it's holding him back from entering heaven. And, And one of the people of heaven wants to get rid of it for him, but he keeps writhing away saying, please don't kill it, please don't kill it, I'll do it myself. And you can tell this man just doesn't have the ability to get rid of this thing until he finally lets the angel get rid of it. And then it transforms into a horse in which he can ride on deep into the uttermost heavens. It's, it's an allegory, of course. And this, this is us. Balaam, we sometimes just let hitchhike in our lives. Oh, no, no, I'm calling the shots. Yeah, yeah, but maybe he's whispering some suggestions. Or maybe he's subliminally calling the shots and you just think you are, but it's his influence. We're dragging too much. We're allowing too much. And sometimes this will hold us down. If it knocked you down, why keep it around? It's going to keep you down. So the advice is to avenge avenge yourself against that which has knocked you down, that which has caused you to flunk and put it to death. So find a mentor, worship deeper, be intentional, kill Balaam. Five, relearn your history. Get up again by relearning your history. Your personal, not like your American history, not your history class, your personal story. Like we sang, this is my story, this is my song. Know your history and relearn it. Sometimes we have to unlearn it to know it. Chapter 33. By the way, 32 is what we had already read, the three, two and a half tribes not going into the promised land. Now in 33, these are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of, their, of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. 
They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord has struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So, verse 5, the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pihathioroth, which is east of Baal Zephon. And they camped before Migdol. And they passed out from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea in the wilderness. And they went a three days journey to the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marach. And they set out from Marach and came to Elim. <laughs> Anyone with me still? It keeps going, the whole chapter. All it is saying is, then they went here, and then they went here, and occasionally on this date. And rarely is there commentary. There's a, there's a small allusion to crossing the Red Sea. You might have caught it. But nothing like dramatic, like, and then they thought they were going to die, and the Egyptians were coming, and then God miraculously delivered them. And, just, and yeah, we passed through the water there, and then we went there, and then we went there. Wow, Moses learned a journal for crying out loud. Um, he, he probably didn't know this was being published. I don't know. <laughs> So he gives us this account. And so it's very boring. So we see what's here, but what's not here is the question. What isn't here? Well, what's not here are the multitude of instances in which Israel complains. We don't see that. We don't see them saying, take us back to Egypt, where there were leeks and onions and in and out and every kind of option I want. We don't see them complaining about manna, the stupid manna. We don't see them complaining about thirst. Nor do we see them worshiping a golden idol, a golden calf, at the base of Mount Sinai. And, and Moses coming down in fury because they had already went against God's ways. Nor do we see Moses striking the rock in anger. Nor do we see the ten spies lying to the people about we can't make it into the land. What's, what's happening in this version of the history, the, the one that we need to relearn? We're learning that God does not keep account of our failures, our flaws, and our shortcomings, our, our, our falling short. He doesn't, he, his grade book doesn't have the F's that we think we earned. He's, he's removed those. Um, at, at Lake Art Christian School, where I teach, in our grade books, there's this, op, it's all digital, so it's, like a click of a button, you can click, drop the lowest grade. And so you yeah, activate that when a student gets an F, that's a low, like they, that just disappears. For God, it's like his grade book says, drop everything that's not an A. And, and here they're all removed. They're all removed. What we also see is that not only does God forgive, but that God is always present. He never forsakes Every single, there's a lot of names in here. You, you don't realize they stopped this many times. I sure didn't. There's so many stops in here, so mundane, so boring. And yet God was concerned enough for each and every one of those stops to say, I was there. I saw it. I was with them. And then when we went there, I was there too. And, and so when we are knocked down and we feel like we're unworthy and shame is keeping us back from the promised land, the way we get back up again is to relearn our history. The history is not me saying, I am a loser and I am no good and I will never amount to anything and God is upset with me. 
the history we need to relearn is God was with me through all of that, and he is not reminding me of any of that. This is a story that can give me confidence to go forward. Find a mentor, worship deeper, be intentional, kill Balaam, relearn your history, and sixth, define your limits. Define your limits. Chapter 34. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. Canaan, by the way, is a promised land. Three, your south, shot, your south side, so try saying that three times fast, south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east, and your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim across to Zin, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall go on to Hazar Adar and pass along. That was where the pirates lived, by the way. Hazar Adar. And pass along to Asmon, the primitive Amazon, I think. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt. It goes on and tells you the borders of the promised land. Um, I'm not even going to pretend to understand half of where those places are. But what I see in this is God saying, okay, your promised land looks like this. I, I have a specific vision for it. But it can be overwhelming for us to see everything that God has for you. And there, I forgot to look it up, but it's in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You can do a search and find it on your phones and stuff. Uh, the passage where it says, I will not give you the whole land at once, but little by little you will conquer, lest the beasts overwhelm you and you be devoured. God understands that we have limits and that we're just humans. As Psalm 103 says, he knows our frame and that we are dust. But do you know that? Do you know your limits? Now, we sometimes need to know what the boundaries are, where things start and where things end, because we can sometimes go too far and get too ambitious. We can go too short and sell ourselves short and limit ourselves. But to know that there is a defined boundary here, I see in this something being said of know where you stand. Know how far you need to go. Know where your own limits are so that you can prepare for those things that are going to stretch you and that you can uh, challenge yourself for the things that aren't going to stretch you. And part of the problem often is that we don't know our limits. We get knocked down, we fail, and we want to have some impossible expectation for ourselves. Like, how dare I do that? I am such an idiot. I am such a fool. I am a no good for nothing, fill in the blank, whatever you are. I'm no good at that. But if we would just look at what happened, we would say, perhaps I was out of my league. And I'm not supposed to be successful at everything. Perhaps there's a growth curve, a learning curve. Perhaps I needed to understand that I wasn't quite yet there and I'm supposed to fail so I can learn how to succeed next time. 
But, but when I don't know my limits, that I am not a very good people person or that I am not this or that or beautiful or tall or, you know, fill in those blanks. It, if I don't understand that, I can, I can unfairly judge myself and my inner critic can go crazy and tell me and eat me away with shame that I don't deserve anything God wants for me. I need to know my limits. I need to know where I'm weak so I can pray for strength. And I need to know where I'm strong and focus on serving God with my strengths. We can go crazy when we focus on our weaknesses. I'm never good at These people are all good at that. I can't do that. I can never public speak. So obviously God uses Pastor Brandon, but will never use me. Are you kidding me? There you are not knowing limits. God's given me this, but he's definitely not given me that. He's given you that. Don't focus on this. Okay, you, you're somewhere else. We need to know our parts of the promised land and the borders that we've been given. So, so define your limits um, so that you can be gracious and have compassion on yourself because God has compassion on you, Psalm 103 says. As a father has compassion toward his children, so the Lord has compassion toward us. He knows our frame, that we are dust, and he has therefore separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. So if we know our limits, we don't have to say, well, I deserve to be down here. We can know that we are going to fall, but grace, remember the trampoline? Grace will help us bounce back. So you still count. That's what God wants them to hear. As they're coming to the very edge of the promised land and Moses is about to die and they're about to enter, you still count. Even though you have to get back up again, you still count. So go ahead and get back up again. Here are six ways. But what we must not do in the process, we must not limit God. The earlier Israelites did that. Right before they enter the promised land, the ten spies come back and say, ah, the giants are too big. But, yeah, too big for you, but you didn't say anything about God. How big are they to God who can hold the cosmos in his hand and put it in his pocket? You think that little giant that he needs a magnifying glass to find is a big problem to him? Don't limit God. Hebrews 3 and 4 tell us that Israel did not initially enter the promised land because of unbelief. They limited what God could do. And one has to wonder if these two and a half tribes in chapter 32 aren't limiting God. But this land is perfect for cattle. Guys, guys, you're, like, you're looking at the appetizer and treating it like the main course. There's more to come, and it's better than fried green beans. You've got to keep going. But no, no, this is great. This is fantastic. We never dreamed of getting it this good. And... And saying, this must be all that God can possibly, not even dreaming that there's something more than what they're seeing in front of them. Yeah, that, you think that land's good? You guys, you guys ever go up the 18 and the 189, wherever, anywhere up here, up any road up here during winter, when the snow had fallen two days ago, and it's all pushed to the side, and there's a lot of the cinder black asphalt that's been dropped, and it's been pushed into the snow banks. And, and we see those... Um, we see people who haven't seen snow before come up. <laughs> Have you ever noticed where they choose to play? 
They're, they're breaking into the snow like, this is snow. It's, it's literally as if the very first snow they find, they pull over and say, this is it. I cannot believe how exciting this is. I'm really sorry if you've done this before. And they, and you, you just drive by and you just can't help but think, if only you knew it was a little further up. If only you knew, if you just kept going. It, it's almost like these two and a half tribes go, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And God's like, oh, heaven bless you. <laughs> but we can't, we can't limit God and think that the first great thing that comes to us is the absolute best that God can do. The, the unworthy person who lives in shame sees the first best thing that comes to them and thinks, I can never do better than that. Well, yeah, you may not be able to, but you're forgetting that God can and will. There's this part um, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with it, you're going to remember this. Like, yes, that, that's it. Uh, but there, there, at the end of the book, it's no spoiler because it follows the Bible, basically. It's kind of the same themes. Uh, there's, there's a new Narnia, which is like the new heavens and new earth for us. There's a new Narnia, and our characters enter into the new Narnia, and they're overwhelmed with how great this new Narnia is. Just the very first things they come across. Colors are richer. The distances are deeper. The colors are more vibrant. Yet there's this phrase as they're there that they're, they're challenged to, uh, to go further up and further in. And they're, they're challenged. Notice, don't stop there. Keep going further up and further in. Further up and further in. Because we have this tendency to think and to say, this is good enough, I'll settle. And God's calling us and saying, this is great, but it's just the appetizer. Further up and further in. Don't settle for just this. I see you as infinitely more than you see yourself. Further up, further in. Keep going to the heights and to the depths. Why don't you turn to Ephesians 3, and we'll end here in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, this is where Paul, if C.S. Lewis was using the language, would say further up, further in. Paul says it with much more verbiage. Ephesians 3 Verse 14, we actually read this before worship. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What reason? Paul had just given Israel the most amazing vision of who they are in Christ. Did I say Israel? The church. Um, It's as if Moses standing on the mountain in which he's going to die is overlooking the promised land. Paul takes us up a mountain and gives us this vast outlook and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, Christian, have already been given every spiritual blessing that exists in the Godhead. There it is. See it? Will you walk in it? And so then he starts to define it. In Christ, we have been chosen. We've been pre-adopted. We've been been given lavishly the grace uh, before the foundation of the world. In him, we have redemption through the sacrifice of his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And he's revealing to us the great wisdom and plan of God, which is to unify all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And then in him, we've been given an inheritance. And in him, we've been given the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance, like the grapes that the spies brought back from the promised land and said, look 
look how great the land is. The Holy Spirit is saying, look how great what God is going to give us is. He's those grapes saying beforehand, look what's even more yet to come if we have faith and trust and belief in God to say, yes, we want your land, your inheritance. And then in chapter 2, he says, this is how deep his love is, that though God is here and we were down here wallowing in death and doing whatever the prince of the power of the air, Satan, is telling us to do and, and, and causing us to go in this circuitous route of just doing whatever our desires want us to do. He then in chapter 2, verse 4 says, but God who is rich in love and mercy, he has reached down and raised us up with Christ and seated us up where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. We've been made royalty, sons and daughters of the Most High King. That's the depth and the height of God's love. And now the breadth and the width of his love is that, yes, Jews were once over here being proud and upright in their legalistic ways and looking down upon the Gentiles who are just sinners and pagan-minded and have a lot to learn. But God says, hey, 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 you guys are going to be grafted in with these great and precious promises and the inheritance I have for Israel. I'm bringing you guys in. And Jews, you need to stop worshiping your circumcision. He literally says that in a nuanced way, um, that you need to stop worshiping that, and you need to come this way and join yourselves with the Gentiles, because I'm choosing them whether you like it or not. They're your brothers and sisters. Get along. And so the breadth and width of God's love now is being brought together as he's calling them together, this miracle of saving us, the depth and the height, and the miracle of unifying us, which we're working on. Then, Paul says, because of all that, for that reason, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Ephesians 3, verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. I want you to have the strength to get back up again, even though we have been failing and have our faults and our shortcomings so that I want you to be strengthened in your inner being so that verse 17 Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you, uh, many translations summarize something like this. I want you to know how high, how deep, how wide, and how long the love of Christ is. I want you to know that so that you can have his fullness giving you the fullest life possible. What is Paul saying? He is literally giving us New Testament version of the promised land. He's saying, I want you to go and explore the breadth and the greatness, the unlimitedness, the unlimited God and his great being and his great love and everything he has for you. I want you to have strength to keep going forward in that. And I want you to know the love which is pulling you in. There's no room for shame in this book. Zero room for shame. And the guilt says, yeah, yeah, that's dealt with, axed off, lopped off. The king of the universe is not even talking about that anymore. He's moved on. Will you move on with him? This great, 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 great inheritance to have strength to go into it. Now verse 20. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And if ever there's a place in the Bible for amen, it's there. And it says amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I love how the King James, the new King James puts it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. It doesn't say to him who can do what you ask or what you think. Even that would be great if you can think or ask big enough. But more than likely you don't because shame's holding you back. Nor does it say, now to him who's able to do above all you ask or think. Nor does it say, now to him who can do abundantly above all you ask or think. It says now to him who can do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask and think. Does, does Paul believe in a limited God? Does Paul believe in a God who's scared of our mistakes and says, well, I can't do anything now. Does Paul believe in a God who's holding us down in shame and saying, stay there, you're not worthy of going there. Paul believes in a God who is limitless, that you would know the breadth, the depth, the height, and the length. You would know the unendingness of those qualities and power of God. So we fail. We are flawed. We have faults. We fall short. Those F's that we flunk, God is just replaced with saying, flaws, excellent. Failure, abundantly. Fall short, above all you can ask and think. These are his three marks for us. You are exceedingly. You are abundantly. You are above all. You can ask and think. And God wants to work his plan in and through us. The worship team is going to come up, and we need to ask ourselves and take a deep look at whether or not we are the two and a half tribes allowing shame to tell us that we are bad. Or if we're letting the forgiveness of God say, no, 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 you did something bad, but I've done something better. And now I want to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. Where are we? Are we settling on the wrong side of the river or are we willing to go into the depths of the unknown and face our fears and our insecurities and our, I'm not enough, and call upon God to be enough for us so that we can go forward and live in the plan he has for us? Where are we? What part of the river? Are we sort of in the middle waiting and kind of not sure like a squirrel crossing the street? Which way am I going to end up on? I don't know until it's too late. Um, Where are you? You're either already moving you're, you're going further up and further in. Great, keep going. Ask for God's strength that you wouldn't stop short of whatever that further up and further in is. Maybe you're on the other side and you've been held down in shame and God's telling you, you still count. No matter what's happened and no matter what you're thinking, you still count. So why don't you just get back up, even if it's again and again and again. Just go, my child. Wherever we are, we come together at the same table where there is no exalted status above the other, but the same equality around the same table in which Jesus gives the same body and the same blood to the same sinners who need the same forgiveness. The same sinners who've been trampled down by shame. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You are my beloved children, and I'm well pleased, and I want to use you. So as we take communion, know your identity. 
Um, pray that God will take you further up and further in. Don't limit him. And let's pray that he would do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think in your life, in this fellowship, and in this mountain community.